Welcome back to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. Today, we're talking about trees. Almost everyone loves trees. Authors and poets write about them. Children love to climb them and to play under them. We all value the shade they provide and enjoy watching their stately beauty. And certain trees go even further, providing people, animal, and birds with tasty and nutritious fruits and nuts. But have you ever looked at a tree and wondered what exactly it does all day? Or you may have wondered how trees cope with different climate conditions and with drought. My guest is a plant ecologist who focuses largely on trees. She's Dr. Susan Schwinning at Texas State University's biology department. And we're going to get answers to those questions and many others, all about trees. Dr. Schwinning, welcome to Mothering Earth. I'd like to have you start by just giving us a little background on yourself, and if you could uh, also tell us about how you got interested in biology and trees. I was born in Germany originally. I got my first degree there, and then at the age of 24, actually came to the United States. And since 2005, I have worked at Texas State University as a plant ecologist. So you're asking, how is it that I'm interested in plants? And so I think from the very beginning, I was sort of fascinated by, uh, you know, the basic biology of plants, that they have this amazing ability to harvest light and make food for all other organisms. So I was, you know, very interested in that basic biology. Then in time, as I learned more and more, that sort of brought, my interest got broadened into including the ecology of plants, how they work together with other organisms and also the environment. And so I understand your uh, your area, or we would call you a plant ecologist, yeah. because mm-hmm. you're looking at... Tell us a little bit, bit more about that. How does that so come? as a plant ecologist, you have to understand the basic function of plants, and that includes how they respond to drought and water levels and climate and so forth. But they also have to, you have to understand their relationship with other species. That means other plants, other trees, um, but also the animals that eat them or spread their seeds or, um, and, and how they respond to environment, which is always fluctuating. So you're looking at a really big picture, basically. I like to look at big picture. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I wanted to start out then by talking about something pretty basic, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, of course, in this area, we have a lot of problems with trees uh, dying because of drought, and then we have floods, which we're not sure how that affects trees. So I'd like for us to understand how do trees work? You know, we see them standing there, they look beautiful, but what, how do they work? How, what do what they actually they do? Yeah. yeah, so that goes back to the basic biology of trees. So like other plants, uh, trees do photosynthesis that's happening in the leaf. So they are taking in CO2. And CO2 is a gas that whenever you let CO2 into your tissues, uh, water vapor has to go out. Those are actually very similar molecules, CO2 and water vapor, H2O. And so it's impossible for all land plants to sort of do one and not the other, so they can't photosynthesize and not also lose water. And so the entire challenge of, so you know probably that plants, like everybody else, um, evolved in water. And so it's actually a very big challenge for all plants to live on land because they have to constantly balance the need to 
take up CO2 with the cost of losing water. And so what trees then have to do, they make these massive root systems underground that we don't see, and they're transporting, they're taking up water from the soil, and they're transporting it up the stem, and out it goes by little pores that are on the leaves that we call stomata. So when you look at a beautiful tree, you should notice the green leaves. That's where the photosynthesis takes place. That's where the light is being harvested. And when you look at the stem, you have to sort of imagine that there's a massive column of water rising from the soil to the leaves to replace the water that's being constantly being lost in the leaves. It's almost like, uh, well, I guess what I'm trying to understand is how does the tree pull the water up out of the soil? It's actually exactly what they're doing. They're pulling it by way of a... Um, uh, you know, uh, what we call a negative water potential in the leaf. So it's not completely unlike you drinking um, uh, some Coke out of a bottle with a straw. So you're applying some suction pressure, and then that pulls up the entire water column. But it's actually a good observation that requires a lot of energy, actually, to pull water up to, you know, several meters sometimes into the air and let it transpire out. You were talking about uh, the, the water or the, the gas ex escaping mm -hmm. through the leaves. Um, can you talk a little more about that process? What is, what is that called? How does that work? Right. So that process uh, takes place through these little pores that are um, very often on the underside of leaves. And the process is called gas exchange because the gases that are being exchanged here are CO2, which is going into the leaf and will be uh, fixed by you know, all the enzymes that are at work there and will be um, turned into carbohydrate at some point. And at the same time, H2O is escaping from the same pores and is being lost. So that is a very fundamental function of plants to do this gas exchange. It's constantly exchanging carbon for water. Right. And so uh, when, when we're in a drought situation, uh, which we've been in here mm -hmm. many times and, and elsewhere in the world, um, what is the, what does the tree or how does the tree cope with the drought? Yeah, so there are several lines of defense. Um, it's a little bit like, um, well, a little bit what you might do as you know using water in your own household as the drought hits first. And you know if the drought is has not been going on very much, if there's still a lot of water in to go around, you might just start to maybe stop washing your car first or, you know, not water your garden in the middle of the day. And so the equivalent of that in trees is first they will shut down these pores a little much, a little bit, so they don't um, uh, lose as much water through the leaves. Okay. Uh, but they're also in return not taking up as much CO2. So they are sort of losing a little bit of food at that time. So when the, when the drought goes on and on, there might be a point where they stop this transpiration totally. And so they are taking up no more CO2. But they still have um, costs, metabolic costs that they have to cover. So what, what happening, what's happening once the drought becomes uh, so intense that uh, the plants can no longer take up uh, CO2 is that they are losing their carbohydrate reserves. And so that's almost like a clock starts ticking. If that goes on for too long, they might in the end die from what's sometimes called um, carbon starvation. You're listening to Mothering Earth. My name is Salwa Khan, and I'm here with Dr. Susan Schwinning at 
the uh, Texas State University. And we were talking about trees and uh, how they cope during a drought. And you were explaining that at some point, the tree actually stops releasing water back into the air. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, so that's a, and that's a mechanism for coping with... Yeah, that's, that's still you might call the second line of defense. Then there's a third line of defense in which trees drop their leaves totally. So that reduces the accidental water loss even more. And in that state, trees can actually last for months and months and months without water because there are now stopped pathways for water to escape. And they're sort of waiting out the drought at that point. Now, not all trees are able to do that. You've probably seen your oak trees losing leaves very regularly during drought. And junipers, for example, not so much because they can't shed their leaves very easily. But what they do is they start shedding entire branches at that point. So that's another, you know, you might yeah. call that the fourth so line of defense that, yeah. for drought is that right. entire parts of the tree die off. Yes. But it doesn't kill the tree still. It takes actually a lot to, to kill a tree. Yeah. And, and actually that uh, brings me to what we, uh, what everybody or a lot of people here talk about, which is this argument about whether cedars are more water intensive, that they're taking up much more water than an oak, um, and and I wondered if you could address that. What what is the story on junipers versus oaks in terms of water use? In terms of water use, yeah. I mean, I I, I look at trees species as as each playing a sort of a different drought resilience strategy. And the strategy that uh, junipers are playing is being very, very drought tolerant to begin with. So it takes takes a lot of drought to kill a juniper tree. Um, and the oak trees are like in the category of trees that will shed their leaves and uh, actually uh, stop gas exchange a lot earlier than the juniper trees. Now in the... Um, 1990s, there was a study that's often cited that looked at the average water use of trees, oaks and juniper in particular, here on the Edwards Plateau. And so the number that has been floated that a juniper tree, this is not during drought, but during normal times, can lose something like 33 gallons per day. And an oak tree can lose something like 20 gallons per day. So, but that depends did say, largely. Did you say lose or use? Oh, well, both, yeah. Okay. Using so then it's by coming losing. up and, and it's, <laughs> it's okay. yeah, being dissipated. Got yeah. it. So, but that number really depends a lot on how much leaf area there is. So then there's a lot of variation. If you look at trees, you know, there might be some tree which uh, might be very old and very tall, but actually doesn't have that much leaf area. And then a juniper tree can be relatively small and have a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, leaf area. Right. So, yeah, that's um, uh, mostly the the factor that determines how much uh, water can be lost. So So those numbers, are they, is that valid? Yeah, that's valid, but it's, um, so, but as soon as a drought hit, um, let's say in summer and you get maybe a month without rain, maybe six weeks, then both trees will actually reduce their water consumption, their water uptake. So in a drought, there's actually very little difference between the water use of oaks and junipers. But in a non-drought situation, we can say the junipers are actually using 
and yeah. losing and more it, water than the they're earth. capable of doing that if you have you know a big tree with a lot of leaf area yeah right. Right. the what is the average lifespan of a tree or is it completely dependent on the species uh, well it depends on the species yeah there are short-lived trees and longer-lived trees now junipers i can't tell you exactly for ash juniper but if you look at western juniper species they can grow several hundred years old if they're in the right spot but that doesn't mean that um, every tree will grow to that age because you know bad climate things will always happen and then it's a matter of you know you know when are you gonna encounter the, the drought that ends up killing you you're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here with Dr. Susan Schwinning at Texas State University, and we're talking about plants and trees, and we'll be back right after this break. We're back now. This is Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here with Dr. Susan Schwinning at Texas State University. And we were talking about trees and droughts and what's the best tree, maybe, to pick for your area. Um, one thing uh, that I wanted to ask about is, you know, we're talking about oaks and junipers, and they have different leaves. And I was wondering, is that, is that one of the factors in terms of how much water is lost? Uh, you know, how much water is go- going into the atmosphere from them? That's, that's a good question. It can be a factor because there's a lot of, you know, different adaptations that plants have at the leaf level to sort of regulate how they respond to drought and how they throttle down water loss when it gets dry. And so one of the things you can say about juniper and oak is that junipers are able to use a little bit of water under relatively strong drought conditions whereas your, um, your oak leaves start to clamp down on water loss uh, relatively earlier. Mm-hmm. But, um, and like I said before, the probably more important factor is how much leaf area is there to begin with. So there are some differences between the rate of water loss on a per leaf area basis, but trees have much greater differences in total amount of leaf area. And we know that Trees, of course, are great not just to look at, but as a way of cooling our climate because they provide shade. And speaking of climate, I'm wondering if things that are changing in our climate, climate change, how does that affect trees? Or or do you see any, um, I guess what I'm looking for is some understanding of how climate change is going to affect trees. Yeah, that's an excellent question, actually, um, which researchers, climate researchers, um, are just learning about. And that is that um, drought conditions are actually fairly common occurrences, especially in this part of the world where we are. And usually it's not a threat to trees. Trees might lose leaves and they might shed some branches, but they usually recover. But what scientists have learned from looking at recent tree die-off events actually all over the world, that it's the heat that actually has the capacity to kill trees. So if you have a drought plus heat, you know, extraordinary hot weather, then it becomes really a little bit risky for trees. And we have seen that in 2011 during the big Texas drought, where um, it was reported that 6% of all trees died. That's 300 million trees in Texas. And we now understand that was one of those hot drought events, what they call sometimes a climate change type drought. 
um, that made the difference. So it wasn't actually a particularly dry year in many places of Texas, but it was a very, very hot year. And so we would expect looking at climate trends and increasing temperatures. It just was um, in the news that 2015 was the hottest year on record. Um, we would expect these kind of combined drought plus hot year types. You see them in greater frequency, and that might mean that we see more tree die-off events. And is that something that we can uh, sort of generalize to the whole world, or is it just in places where, like Texas, which is extremely hot anyway? <laughs> no, I think it, it actually generalizes in that one study I'm thinking of that was very influential uh, putting the spotlight on hot droughts was actually collecting uh, reports on tree die-off events from all wooded continents, from just everywhere. They happen everywhere. And they might happen at lower temperatures in more northern climates and hotter temperatures here. It all depends on the adaptation of the local plants. But if it exceeds a sort of certain heat tolerance level for too long, combined with dry conditions, then that is a very, very high stress level for a tree. How how does the heat affect the tree in addition to the drought? Yeah, that's what, you know, interesting, what, how, how and, and we don't understand it very well, actually. Yeah. So science is still struggling with the you know with the question what the you know what kills trees. We don't know. I mean, there are several hypotheses. For example, uh, one thing that can be said about heat that it raises the metabolic level, the metabolic needs. So I talked earlier about carbon starvation. So the heat can actually accelerate. Um, how fast trees can become carbon starved because they need more energy to um, keep up their metabolic uh, expenditures. Um, it also, of course, accelerates the, the, the rate of water loss, both from the tree and the soil, so it becomes drier faster when it's hot. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. And it can, you know, when it becomes really hot, uh, it can actually fry tissues. It can, you know, kill living tissues outright. Right. And so would that start with the leaves sort of drying up? and No, because the leaves are expendables. Like I said before, if things get a little bit dry, you can check the leaves and you can sort of uh, have a lockdown in terms of water loss. But what happens then is also that um, temperature tends to become hotter, both in the air and in the leaves, because I mean in the trees, because you don't have the um, evaporative cooling effect through transpiration. So, yeah, it's, well, like I said, it's, it's still kind of a mystery how, how is it though? You know, one tree, you see one tree over there and it goes through the drought really well, and then another tree on the other side of the street and gets killed, and we don't really understand what the difference is. One thing I'm curious about is sort of the, uh, you know, we look at our landscape now and wonder how did it get this way. So the trees we have here now, how, can you give us a little history, going back in time maybe, of what things were like um, maybe hundreds of years ago and what they're like now and how we got there? Yeah, so from written down eyewitness reports of maybe 150 years or so, um, there were still the same species as we have today. But there probably were a lot fewer juniper trees, so they were more confined to um, steep hill slopes, and there was more open grassland. Actually, that's true not just of central Texas, but much of the interior of, of the United States. And 
so, uh, you know, for many years, scientists have speculated what was it that, you know, and, and it coincided with the arrival of Anglo settlers, Anglo-European settlers, and people have wondered, okay, what, how did they change the environment that you got this proliferation of trees? And um, it probably has to do with the, well, two things. A, the introduction of cattle that were grazing uh, the grasses. And that also had a direct and indirect effect on fire frequency. So fire was actually a very important component of um, the local ecosystems. Um, when you got into a summer drought event and there might be a lightning strike and it's, the grasses started to burn, it would kill all the tree seedlings that were in the grassland. And so with less fuel because of the uh, cattle grazing and perhaps also active fire suppression, it became easier and easier for those little tree seedlings to grow up uh, into tall trees. And once they are all grown up and mature, it's really hard to kill them by fire. Right. And that happened not just here, but also in the Great Plains everywhere in the United States. You have this, it's called woody plant encroachment phenomenon. And it's not any tree species that the Europeans brought. It's native trees that all of a sudden got sort of released from uh, ecological barriers that prevented them from moving into grasslands. Yeah. And so I, I would guess that the, that uh, part of the problem is now that as, as people uh, move into wild areas and start developing developments and houses, of course, woody plants to grow. Yeah. I mean, uh, locally, uh, you know, a lot of ranchers and land managers come to see how important it is to have regular burns. And so if they're interested to sort of do grassland restoration or maintenance, they will schedule these burns. Yeah. And there's still a lot of debate, you know, should we burn in winter or summer? And winter burns are safer, but summer burns are probably better also to keep other invasive species out. Or the alternative is, of course, to do mechanical reduction of, of juniper trees, but that has its own costs in terms of disturbance and soil erosion. So it's not the best way, and it's often not, um, uh, not very successful either in that these woodlands can come back very quickly. So the, the best thing you can do if you have... If you're a landowner and you have an open patch of grasses, you just try to keep it that way and prevent new trees from coming in. You mentioned invasives. So are there certain uh, trees or maybe other plants that are around trees uh, that we, we should be concerned about, uh, maybe try to remove if we have them? Yeah, especially if you live in a city, um, there is often, um, you know... Uh, you know, people are uh, trying to bring in ornamental trees, pretty trees like china berry and these kind of things. And so these are trees that don't belong here in the local ecology. They have been imported because they're great shade trees and, you know, they look pretty, but they can become invasive. That means they can uh, sort of propagate um, on their own and then move into um, wild areas, and then that can be a problem. So definitely if you're planning to... Uh, plant a tree, make sure that it's a native tree. The invasive trees that we should look out for are like china berry or privet or heavenly bamboo. And so these were all trees or, or plants that were brought in by somebody who... Brought in and, uh, you know, because they're ornamentals, they look very pretty, but they have this ability to sort of escape the gardens of the cities and make it out um, 
into parks first and then maybe even leave the city and move on and they can become huge problems. Yeah. Over the centuries, a lot of species have been brought into the United States. And, you know, ever since people have traveled, they have brought materials back and forth. And the overwhelming majority of these species aren't really a problem because they can, they either cannot survive on their own or they get naturalized and live in harmony with the species that are there. But then Every once in a while you have a species that is so aggressive that it really displaces many, many other species and reduces um, species diversity and then that has cascading effects on the entire ecosystem and not providing the right mixture of foods for the uh, animal consumers, uh, you know, changing all kinds of ecosystem services in more general ways. So those are the ones that you really have to look out for. Even in, um, in, in Texas, I mean, if you travel in Texas now and you look at grasslands, probably 90% of the grasses you see are one introduced species. That's K.R. bluestem, King Ranch bluestem or yellow bluestem. That is an introduced species, and that has almost completely replaced a great diversity of prairie grasses that used to be here. So we're now used to it. We don't look at it as an invasive species anymore, but that's the result of... Um, of an aggressive invasion is that you lose tremendous biodiversity. That's all for Mothering Earth this time. You know, I'd love to hear from you, so please send any comments or suggestions for future shows to me at gardentoad at vcs.com. That's gardentoad, one word, at vcyes.com. For now, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth.